0: You know we all know about the wars we we, we study the Civil War, um, and one aspect of American history that I think deservedly gets a lot of attention is slavery and, and race relations and you know after i've studied this this uh, aspect and seen how it's impacted our country in so many ways economically, socially, even religiously um, I, I can't downplay it and the more I think about how for For hundreds of years, a whole race of people were bought and sold like livestock, the more I've developed an understanding of just how evil this institution was. Um, Just this week, uh, my wife Jess and I uh, celebrated our our seventh anniversary, and um, each year we go out and see a movie, and and since we're both in social studies, um, we like movies that have to do with history or political thrillers, and so... You know, last year it was Abraham Lincoln, uh, the movie Lincoln, which was great. Uh, this year we went and saw the 12 Years a Slave. And, it, you know, it was brutal, the, the entire movie. It was, uh, it, and we expected that. But when you see it, and when you study it, and when you, you understand that, that every aspect of this was just pure evil, you start to get a sense of, I think, of, of the type of evil we see Jesus praying against. Um, you know, one particular aspect of, of that whole event in history that strikes me is how the, the lengths to which people went to protect and justify something that was very wrong. Um, early on, at one point, it was considered a necessary evil. You know, it was acknowledged this isn't quite right, doesn't really fit with what we're about, but it's necessary. You know, slavery is necessary after all. Our, our national economy depends on it, both in the north and the south. Um, the argument went that life of an African-American slave was far better than life as an African across the ocean. And as our country struggled through this, this hypocrisy of, of being founded on liberty and freedom and yet having slavery, um, our country got more divided, more polarized. And soon, uh, and, you know, Southerners began to insist that slavery was not evil at all. In fact, they began to call it a positive good. So, what's going on here? Something so evil that has been turned around and, and being called a positive good. Uh, Southerners, many of them, not all, would say that that this was the way God had made the world. This is a God-ordained institution. Some people are meant to be on top, and others are meant to be on the bottom. So ultimately, this leads to a civil war, another example of, of evil manifesting itself. Uh, we get fellow Americans killing other Americans for four very bloody years. Um, and we, you know, we get slavery abolished, but evil cannot be eradicated through warfare and violence. And so for the next hundred years, we continue to struggle with race relations. We see uh, the evils of Jim Crow. We see racially motivated laws meant to strip the dignity of of. Human beings, uh, you know, lynchings were all too common for the well into the 20th century. You know, you want to talk about evil, you, you see examples of people in the name of justice, whole communities coming together to to capture a black man, accuse him of sometimes just mere misdemeanors, beat him, mutilate him, burn him, hang him, and do this in the name of sacred justice. Do this with we see examples of, of parents who would hoist their kids on their shoulders to witness this because this was the right thing to do in their mind. <laughs> Often they'd go to church the next day. Evil is very real. Um, another example that that hit me hard was this last summer I took a a class on the Holocaust and You talk about a downer. Uh, Again, you go into it knowing this is not going to be easy. Um, One thing that struck me was there's a lot of parallels between what we see with slavery in the United States and what we saw with the Holocaust. Uh, One thing that struck me was a journalist who was covering the trial of a Nazi official named Adolf Eichmann in the 1960s expressed a chilling reality of the kind of evil that exists in our world. Um, She described this, this man, Eichmann, as a very normal human being. He wasn't a psychopath like Hitler. He wasn't a bloodthirsty barbarian. He was just an ordinary man that exhibited what she called the banality of evil. In other words, many people who took part in the evils of the Holocaust had succumbed to a system of evil that had become simply ordinary. So how can we explain this? I mean, when you really stop and think about some of these incredibly evil events how can we understand this? Uh, was it just individual decisions that led people to do such evil things? And I think when we're trying to unpack this part of the Lord's Prayer I mean, and we're talking about evil, one thing we need to um, understand is that evil is more complex and real than what we typically think. And I think especially in the United States, uh, we, we misunderstand evil. We, we don't think about it a whole lot. Recently, a Columbia professor wrote a book titled The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil. And in the book, he wrote this, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. We tend to be caught off guard when we experience great degrees of evil. For most Americans, it's evil ends up being an intellectual problem. You know, we we just, we can't deal with it. We don't understand why do good people suffer? Why does God allow evil? In the West, another obstacle that we face is that we've been taught for the last several hundred years that everything has a scientific explanation. You know, what we call evil, people will say, is just the result of material forces. It's just individual decisions. It's societal injustices. It's psychological factors. And so the experts tell us how to deal with this. Um, we, we need to uh, have, have better education. We need healthier lifestyles. We need, we need more government programs. And that will take care of it. But the Bible tells us there's a lot more to evil than just human decisions. Uh, a pastor and author, Timothy Keller, writes that the Bible says that evil is more multidimensional, nuanced and complex than science alone can suggest. It maintains that in addition to systemic injustices and personal ignorance and physiological imbalances, there really are forces of spiritual evil in the world. And behind them all there is a singular supernatural intelligence. You know, whether Jesus is instructing us to pray for deliverance Um, from evil in general, or specifically the evil one, which we see both examples in the Gospels, uh, the biblical narrative is quite clear that evil spiritual forces are at work in our world. I think this is why the biblical authors don't even really try to explain why is there evil. Um, To them, it was obvious. Of course, there are dark powers at work that are battling against God and attacking us. They don't don't try to explain it. They they don't look at it like an intellectual problem. They don't try to say, well, God is sovereign and God is good, but then there's evil, so does that make God somehow responsible for evil? They didn't mess with that. They understood, of course God is good. Of course he's sovereign. And of course there is evil. Their main concern is what do we do about it? What do we do about it? Uh, Lots of examples of this. One I found was Hebrews 3.12 says this. Take care, my dear family, that none of you should possess an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to withdraw from the living God. So since evil is not just something in the past or something that other cultures deal with or other people, we need to listen carefully to what Jesus tells us about evil. So let's look at the first part. Okay, let's go back to the lead us not into temptation. Uh, The Greek word that that is used for temptation in this uh, can be translated as trials or testings, or it can be translated as the traditional understanding of temptation. So it could be Jesus saying, lead us not into trials, lead us not into testings, or it could be the traditional understanding of temptation, but we have to deal with a couple things first. Uh, Since passages such as James 1.13 explicitly tell us that God does not tempt anyone, we can say with certainty that God does not solic- solicit us to sin. He's not, he doesn't tempt us to sin. And Jesus does not say that he does. So if we understand Jesus is praying that God would not lead us into trials or testing, a natural question is why would, he, why would we even need to do this? Do we really need to pray constantly, constantly that bad things never happen to us? Doesn't the Bible tell us that trials are good for us, that our our faith can increase, we can be built up? (coughs) Is Jesus telling us to ask God to exempt us from that which is necessary for our own spiritual maturity? And what does this have to do with being delivered from evil? One thing we need to remember when thinking about this is, as we've already discussed, evil is a very real thing. And therefore, trials, tests, and temptations are a normal part of the Christian life. And Jesus knew this very well. Trials and temptations are a normal part of the Christian life. You know, the idea that once you become a Christian that you'll no longer face trials and temptations and you'll simply have a blessed life is as false as the idea that once you become a big leaguer and join the Chicago Cubs, you're going to experience championships doesn't happen that way. Sorry, Dave, but that's the truth. We um, need to work the cubs into more messages here. Um, it just doesn't work that way. N.T. Wright puts it this way. If we, fo- if we as Christians follow a crucified Messiah, we shouldn't expect to be spared the darkness ourselves. But we must and may pray to be kept from its worst ravages and to be delivered from the evil one. The fact is that trials are to be expected and they can be used by God to build us up, but at the same time, they're almost always used by Satan as a temptation. When we look at the Gospels, we can clearly see how Jesus prepared his disciples for a life of trials and hardships if they chose to follow him. Uh, We can see this playing out in Jesus' own life. In Matthew, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit, Into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Timothy Keller notes that this happens right after Jesus was baptized. He says it's almost like Matthew is trying to tell us: "Read my lips. No one is exempt from trials and tribulations." In fact, this is what this is what often happens to people God loves very much, for it is part of God's often mysterious and good plan for turning us into something great. So the reality is we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where evil exists. And whether you're a believer or not a believer, you're going to experience trials. Um, Now, the thing to remember for us is that that Satan and his demonic forces are going to attack Christians and non-Christians, but Satan's number one enemy is the church. And Jesus knew this to be true, and he didn't sugarcoat it. Um, A while back, Pastor Dave was was preaching on the passage um, where Jesus says that he will build up the church and that that even the gates of hell will not overcome it. And he said something that i had never really caught before. Um, The gates of hell would be a defensive barrier. And so, in other words, Jesus is telling his followers that we should be on the offensive and that the gates of hell will not be able to stop the expansion of God's kingdom. So, who is the greatest threat to Satan's kingdom? You know, a while back, Dave talked about how Satan has an incredible amount of power in, on this earth. And uh, he is at work constantly trying to keep us from God. So, who's his no, number one threat? It's, it's the church, it's the body of Christ um, who has been commissioned to carry on the work of Jesus. And because of this, Satan loves to tempt us and lead us away from God's work. And as we've gone through the Lord's Prayer, you know, I hope you've seen the, the radical nature of this prayer and, and how Jesus is calling for a radical new way of living. This is not just some small little bedtime prayer that we can just casually say. You know, In light of, of, of our calling and the very real existence of evil, you know, we should stop ourselves and evaluate how much of a threat are we to Satan? I heard one pastor say it like this, um, are you the kind of person whose wanted poster is hanging up in the post office of hell? You know? I mean, does he even care about us? We need to remember that during our trials, when we are vulnerable and in a dark place, that's the exact time when Satan is going to tempt us and try to steer us away from God. But it's also the exact time when even though we are weak, God's power can be magnified and we can have a steadfast dependence on Him and overcome the temptations of Satan. One theologian says, "...the fact that God has promised to be faithful and to provide the way of escape does not mean in the logic of the New Testament prayer that one should not pray for it, but rather the reverse." Those who pray the Lord's Prayer are designed by Jesus to be those who remain faithful to the God who intends to remain faithful to them. And this, to me, is the counterintuitive beauty of the good news we have in Jesus. What Satan means for evil, God is ready to use for his purposes. The Bible tells us that no temptation we face will be too great. The one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. And in 1 John It says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So how does all this apply to our daily lives? We're talking about, you know, Holocaust and slavery and evil and Satan. How does this apply to our daily life? Well, as we've gone over the last few weeks, the context of this prayer is Jesus' announcement that the kingdom of God is coming through his work. And I think at first glance, when you think about praying that God's kingdom would come and that it would be manifested in us, is, is almost like um, you know, dreaming about something that's really, really big, something like world peace that's like so much bigger than ourselves. But at the same time, we need to remember that when we pray this, it should be a very personal thing as well because Jesus tells us we have an eternally significant role in his kingdom and in God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we think about that and try to live that out, we need to remember there's an enemy who is bent on stopping this or containing this. This is not just um, something that the biblical authors throw in there to scare us. It's, it's reality. And so, to me, it plays out like this. Every decision we make contributes to God's kingdom or it contributes to Satan's kingdom. This is the very real battle that we are engaged in, in this life. Satan is attacking us, he's distracting us, he's tempting us to not even think about this spiritual battle. I think that's one of his best weapons, is we don't even think about it. Ah, there's not really this battle, I don't see it playing out in my life. You know, Satan, is that even? does he even really exist? You know, we don't think about it. We don't pray against it. And I think another weapon that Satan uses is to get us to cut corners. A.K.A. sin. You know some examples I thought of things that that Satan I think is constantly tempting us to do that are just little ways of cutting corners, uh, cheating a little bit on your taxes. You know, getting paid in cash so nobody knows about it. Complaining about somebody behind their back, profiting at someone's expense or devaluing certain types of people. It was normal people who began to cut corners that led to the acceptance of evils like slavery and the Holocaust. Just little deviations from God's ways. The temptation to cut corners is a constant battle in our lives. Uh, Just last week, I got the the 440 text message um, on my phone, and it was, Lord, as a church, is there anything keeping us from pursuing you together? Sin, darkness, anything we're hiding from you. And I got this text uh, while sitting in Meineke. My car was, was getting an oil change, and I'm sitting there, and I, I, I read the, te- the text. And then I, I prayed it, which took all but three seconds. And, you know, I was supposed to pray for four minutes. Um, the problem was, uh, I was I was very distracted because Dr. Oz was on the TV. So I'm sitting there in the waiting room and I read this text and Dr. Oz is playing and, and I was distracted. And he was talking about preparing for a colonoscopy and it was interesting. I don't know why, but it was interesting. <laughs> and so I'm watching Dr. Oz, which I never normally watch Dr. Oz show, and uh, you know I read the text and I prayed the text and it kind of hit me at that point um, because I actually had my, my laptop out, and I was working on the sermon at that exact time as well, and, you know, it hit me. How easy is it for us to just blow off the exercise of seriously thinking about if there's sin in our lives that's keeping us from God's will? I mean, how easy is it to seriously stop and think about if there's sin in our life that is keeping us from God's will? Or, or is there, are there dark forces in our life keeping us from God's will? Because Satan wants us to believe that exercises like that don't really make a difference. I mean, after all, you pray it, you don't pray it, does it really matter? I'm going to get my keys, I'm going to put it in my car, I'm going to drive home. Everything's going to be the same. Nothing's really going to change if you stop and really pray that prayer, or if you don't. That's what Satan wants us to believe. That's how if we cut corners, and we choose to sin, and we forget that there's a real battle... Raging for our allegiance each day. If we do that, God's will is not being done on earth as it is in heaven. On the other hand, if we are continually in prayer and if we are relying on the Holy Spirit to deliver us from evil and help us in our weakness, we don't cut those corners. We don't give Satan a foothold. When we do this, we vote for and contribute to God's kingdom. And this can be all the little small decisions we make throughout the day. Examples that I came up with, uh, just going out of your way to smile and say hi to a person we know to be struggling. Biting your tongue when you want to gossip about someone. Looking away from images on TV that cause us to lust. Taking a proactive approach to reconcile with someone. Not waiting for them, but taking a proactive approach ourselves. These are not just good deeds or random acts of kindness. These are things that contribute to God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. These are victories over the temptations of Satan. And when we as a church work together and consistently live this out, uh, you know, that's what can earn us a wanted poster in the post office of hell. We don't have to be theologians. We don't have to be missionaries or pastors to do this. Because Satan loves to get the church distracted, to get us to think that what we do really isn't that important. But it is. You know, I think back uh, to what we were talking about earlier and how history indeed highlights the worst of mankind, but it also um, includes the heroic, the exceptional um, stories of redemption in the midst of very evil events. And as hard as it is to study slavery or the Holocaust or or other evil events, uh, the good news is that God does not abandon us. God is with us when we go through trials. God does not abandon us when we um, do evil acts ourselves. He's right there with the oppressed. And there are countless stories in history of God working through people to overcome the temptations of just going along with the crowd. You know, I think about the people who put their lives at risk hiding runaway slaves or or Jews, and and that's well chronicled. But not so well known are the stories of all the ordinary people who had resisted the temptations long before the Civil War or the Holocaust. Um, The individuals who had been delivered from the evil of thinking for even one moment that any human being was inferior to them. The people who had contributed to God's kingdom by doing small things, by refusing to buy products that were made from slave labor. Or the people in Germany who refused to slander a Jew's character. That was so easy to do in the decades leading up to the Holocaust. Is just blame the Jews for everything. Just uh, you know, derogatory comments directed at, at the Jews. That was the normal thing. Or what about the families who encouraged their Gentile kids to have genuine friendships with Jewish kids. These are the sort of little things that allow God's love and God's kingdom to expand in very unexpected ways. And perhaps it's these small things that Jesus had in mind when he referred to the kingdom of God as a mustard seed. It starts small and it grows ever so slowly into something big and beautiful. Um, Just... Last night I was uh, I was watching the movie The Hobbit, so Nate, this will make you happy. Um, except I'm probably going to butcher some of the names and not get it all right, and you'll be mad at me. But uh, I, I love this movie. Um, I've never read the books, and I probably never will because um, it's just a lot easier to to read uh, to watch the movies. And uh, anyways, I was watching this lo- just last night, and. Uh, there was a scene that, that really caught my attention. Uh, it, they, were, uh, they were in Rivendell, and uh, the, the, I'll just call her the Elf Princess. I don't know her actual name here, but um, ask Nate if you, if you want to know this. But, but she's having a conversation with Gandalf the Wizard, and, and Gandalf is, is getting ready to go on this big quest and, and, and fight all these evil forces. And she asked him, uh, why the halfling? Why are you bringing this little hobbit with you? to go into these big, giant battles. And Gandalf says this. He says, I don't know. Saruman believes it is only great power that can hold evil in check. That is not what I've found. I've found it is the small things, the everyday deeds of small folk that keeps the darkness at bay, the simple acts of kindness and love. And uh, the author of, of The Hobbit, Tolkien, a very um, very good Christian author who captures a lot of biblical truth throughout these stories, I think nailed it right there. What can keep darkness and evil at bay? It's, you know, we don't have to abolish slavery. We don't have to be missionaries. It's the little things that we do each day to overcome temptations and relying on God's Spirit to deliver us from all kinds of evil. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, the chance to come together as a body to pray your prayer as a body as we unpack it each week and discover just how um, meaningful this is. And as we, we think about how evil is very real, it is at our doorstep, we think about how even though uh, we don't talk about it a lot, we, we don't consciously maybe even think about it, there, there are dark forces who want nothing more than to keep us from doing the little things, to keep us from your will. But we thank you, Lord, that just as Jesus prayed and showed us, we can be delivered from evil not by our own goodness, by just doing good things, but through your grace and your power. And we pray that you would help us to do that, and we pray this in Jesus' name.